Hi. My name is Judy Reese. I co-direct the Cancer Epidemiology Research Program with Brock Christensen here. And um, it's my pleasure to introduce to you uh, Dr. Saeed Hassanpour from uh, the Cancer Epidemiology Program. Dr. Hassanpour joined Dartmouth in 2015 as a, um, an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Data Science. Uh, he graduated from the Sharif uh, University of Technology in Tehran with a bachelor's in computer engineering, did a master's in math and computer science at the University of Waterloo in Canada, and at Stanford he did a PhD in electrical engineering and biomedical informatics, and along the way has um, done a postdoc in the radiology department at Stanford and a couple of years with Microsoft. Um, since he's been at Dartmouth, he's been, been doing some very exciting work. He's been teaching his computers how to interpret uh, text in medical records and uh, digi digital imaging. Um, so he's doing some very exciting cutting-edge stuff. And um, I have to also um, say some of these uh, notices. So um, Dr. Hassanpour doesn't have any financial interest to note. He doesn't intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. He's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Anybody wanting CME credits, you can use the activity code displayed outside the room after the presentation. Um, welcome to anybody who's watching remotely. If you want CME credits, you email um, Paula. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Judy, for the introduction. So you guys can hear me. I don't know if this mic works or not. Well, uh, it's a small room, so I I think I can just talk a little bit uh, louder. So as Judy mentioned, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Data Science, and I'm, a, I'm affiliated with the Epidemiology Department and Computer Science Department here. And today I'm going to talk about a few applications of data science in uh, cancer screening. And as Judy mentioned, I don't have any uh, conflicts of interest or financial interests. So um, a few uh, years ago, if uh, you heard of artificial intelligence outside of research lab, it probably would have been in uh, science fiction movies. But these days, artificial intelligence is making uh, its way into our everyday life. So, well, for example, we can uh, use artificial intelligence technology in devices like Amazon Alexa or Google Home to schedule a new meeting or uh, plan our vacation, uh, or we can use uh, other technologies that actually are integrated with phone uh, uh, and uh, mobile system to actually you know, navigate and go around our daily life. And also, uh, every year we hear that you know, other cutting edge uh, AI technology like autonomous cars are just around the corner or every day we hear that uh, these AI systems are outperforming human beings in some task or uh, winning some competition uh, against uh, experts in the domain, like IBM Watson in Jeopardy um, competition or AlphaGo in the Go Challenge. But uh, this new basically wave of uh, technology and the advancement is uh, basically due to this um, advancement in new technology that is called deep learning or uh, deep neural networks. Actually, I, um, in autumn, I uh, teach a course on uh, applied machine learning, and I spend a few weeks uh, talking about the details of this new technology. But to, uh, today, I want to spend a few more minutes to 
to speak about why uh, right now, at this moment, this technology became possible and we have seen these new advancements. Um, in my opinion, there are a few reasons that I listed here. Uh, the first reason is about the abundance of uh, big data. So uh, this new uh, technology requires um, a lot of data for training. And only in recent years, maybe you know, since mid-2000s, this uh, amount of data became available for uh, researchers to train and develop their models. The sources of, of these uh, data coming from the web, social media, wearable sensors, and also in our domain, we have seen that uh, genetic testing is becoming more, uh, it's cheaper and more affordable, and uh, we having uh, we having more access to genetic data, and also uh, it, uh, there has been a wide acceptance of electronic medical records that made this data available for researchers to use that to develop their models. The second uh, reason for uh, this new advancement in AI uh, technology is uh, development of these high or use of these high performance computing in, uh, in this domain. So traditionally, most of these models are trained on the CPUs um, and, uh, and uh, developed for that uh, platform. However, recently, most more and more of these uh, 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 models actually use new hardwares like uh, GPUs or graphics uh, processing units to to train and uh, and build uh, uh, build their models. So uh, basically, these new models, um, in contrast to CPUs, are uh, are are capable of uh, running massive parallel operation that was uh, impossible before. And uh, finally, um, the the last reason, in my opinion, that these uh, new wave of technology is becoming more and more uh, 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 spread uh, across different fields is the, is the, uh, uh, the investment of uh, these high-tech giants in this field. Basically, these uh, tech companies invest a lot of money to develop these platforms that use this new hardware to uh, developed these technologies and uh, made these uh, uh, platforms open source. So uh, researchers can use these platforms to develop and contribute uh, to, uh, to the research. And here I listed some of these platforms that were developed in the only in a few last few years for for uh, specifically developing uh, deep learning technology. TensorFlow from Google, PyTorch and PyTorch from Facebook. CNTK from Microsoft and MXNet uh, from Amazon. These are the very uh, mostly used platforms for developing uh, deep learning uh, models. So now I want to uh, talk to you guys about what this new technology means for our domain in the cancer research and screening. And uh, in my opinion, uh, this technology can uh, revolutionize the current system for uh, for uh, analyzing the uh, medical images, uh, such as medical uh, histology images and radiology images, and also distilling uh, information from uh, electronic medical records in form of text and help uh, with the clinical decisions uh, process. And as a showcase, I'm going to start my talk about use of this technology for uh, uh, co colorectal cancer screening. 
So uh, why uh, colorectal cancer screening? I should say uh, CRC is the deadliest uh, type of cancer after, is the second deadliest uh, type of cancer after lung cancer. However, it is um, uh, preventable because it arises from these polyps that take a few years to grow to cancer. And uh, if uh, the patients go through frequent screening, they can, these polyps can be removed and uh, prevent cancer. So biopsy and uh, histopathological characterization of these polyps are the uh, major uh, principle in uh, uh, CRC screening. However, this, this task, this characterization of these polyps is a, is a challenging uh, task for pathologists. So here I, I went uh, online uh, through Google. I searched in the, in the, in the uh, publication repositories for the a study of uh, variability among pathologists uh, for this task, for characterization of polyps on uh, microscopic images. And here you can see the studies that you could find uh, in the last 20, 30 years. So here you can see the year of the study, the, maybe here, the year of the study, the number of polyps, and the protocol that they used for uh, basically for uh, studying this uh, variability and error in uh, the, uh, among pathologists and kappa coefficient, which is the, which is the metric for the agreement between, uh, between uh, domain experts. And uh, here you can see we have something between 2 to 12 uh, uh, GI pathologists in this evaluation. And, uh, and across all of these studies, the agreement between pathologists for, character, for characterizing polyp on the slides is either fair or poor. So uh, this shows that this characterization uh, has loss of variability and error among but even the domain expert GI pathologists. And also the other challenge about the risk assessments in, uh, in, um, in colon cancer screening. So the, currently there is a guideline in place by U.S. Multi-Society Task Force that uh, uses the basically uh, baseline uh, colonoscopy information to, to uh, categorize patients in high risk and low risk categories. And based on this categorization, there are different recommendations to, for follow-up colonoscopy and coming back and uh, doing another screening for, uh, for basically removing polyp if there isn't. However, this uh, uh, current guideline um, only depends on four factors. These four factors are is the pathological uh, characterization or type of polyps in the baseline colonoscopy, the number, size, and location of these polyps. But both guideline and also the massive body of literature in this domain uh, actually uh, uh, agree that there are a large amount of other risk factors that are important for, for risk assessment and categorization of, uh, 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 of individuals in higher and lower risk uh, categories, such as age, race, uh, race BMI, smoking, alcohol use, and so on. So uh, here there is um, this... Um, Yep, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so there is this opportunity to improve the, to improve this uh, risk assessment uh, and make it more accurate. So um, 
So here is the list of uh, our objectives for this, uh, uh, in this project. I, we have three uh, main objectives. First, we want to use the deep learning technology to build an, uh, an automatic and accurate uh, system to characterize polyps on whole slides. In the second aim, we want to make this uh, technology interpretable. It means that we want to basically show that why we come up with this uh, with this result uh, or this uh, type for poly rather than other ones, so pathologists can understand our uh, our, our uh, decision-making process, and also they can trust us, and also it can provide the provide a training uh, opportunity for young pathologists. And uh, the last uh, aim in this uh, project is. Uh, combining the information from EMR and also histopathological features and information from all the slides to have a comprehensive assessment for uh, for uh, patients uh, in regard to their uh, to, uh, to their CRC risk for recommendation of uh, appropriate follow-up colonoscopy rate. So. Uh, we actually, so, so far, uh, most of our efforts has been focused on the first two aims, and uh, this is the collaboration that has been going on in the last year with the Department of Pathology, with uh, Arif and his group uh, in the Pathology Department, and uh, we actually published a couple of papers on, the, on our results that I'm going to talk about uh, today. And I'm going to talk about uh, our next step regarding the, the third objective. So uh, the data set uh, is actually is, um, is currently, uh, in our data set currently, there is about 700 patients and their uh, histology images uh, from uh, the colonoscopy here at DHMC. This data was collected in collaboration with Arif. And we uh, used two thirds of uh, this data set for training our uh, algorithms in the system, and one-third of it, uh, it was uh, held out for evaluation that I'm going to talk about later. So um, in our study, we focused on the five uh, type of polyps that are the focus of uh, uh, UC Multi-Society Task Force, and, uh, and also these five types uh, cover the majority of uh, uh, polyp occurrences between, among uh, patients. Uh, here you can see the list of uh, five polyp types that we are actually uh, covering in our study. <coughs> Hyperplastics, cell serrated polyp, traditional serrated, and so on. And also we have this uh, six-type normal because we want if there is a biopsy that actually doesn't contain any polyp, we still want to identify that as a normal. So we have uh, five type of polyps plus one. And uh, to build and develop our models, we need actually have reference standard uh, labels for these uh, histology images. And to assign these reference standard uh, labels, we used uh, two different uh, uh, pathologists. These are actually residents in uh, our IF uh, lab. They're independently reviewed the images uh, and assign a uh, polyptide to them. So here, if there was a disagreement between the residents, uh, they first discuss it together. If they could not resolve the disagreement and come to a conclusion, they were, uh, they were discussed to our senior pathologist, Arif, and uh, he basically resolved this disagreement and uh, had the final say in the label 
of these, uh, of these polyps. And uh, also I should mention that these histology images are very high uh, resolution, so only a small part of it actually belong to polyp, but majority of it are just normal tissue. So we not only ask the pathologist to actually uh, identify the type of uh, polyp on the slide, we also ask them to outline the polyp on the slide using a crop around it, using a window, a box around it, and uh, we basically use those crops in our actually models to train them. So um, here you can, in this table, you can see the number of crops that we actually ended up after this annotation process. We have uh, more than 2,000 uh, crops, and each crop is basically outlined in polyp in the, in, the, in the slide, and we basically use them as a bathing, uh, as a building block in our in our algorithm. So uh, as the first step, we use the state-of-art uh, architecture to, to train our model. And this, uh, in this model, we just wanted to classify the crop. It means that if they have a crop from the whole slide that contain a polyp, we wanted to classify correctly from which uh, type of uh, polyp it is. And to do that, we used, as I said, one of the state-of-art um, architectures in this domain. And uh, I'm not going to go into uh, too much detail about it, but it, has, it had 152 layers. So I couldn't fit all the layers here. But it's very adaptable, and, uh, and it's already used in the general domain for, uh, for basically image classification. So we not only use the ResNet, so this uh, state-of-art architecture is called Residual Network, or ResNet for short. We also use other architecture. We use GoogleNet from Google, VGG, from uh, Oxford, AlexNet, University of Toronto, and some non-deep learning uh, uh, architectures like, uh, and uh, machine learning classifiers like SVM and Random Forest. And as I mentioned, these are only, these are all used for classifying these polyps. And we saw that uh, ResNet actually outperformed other ones. Uh, GoogleNet was the close second. We have the 95% confidence interval. And we used the, basically the, our test set that I mentioned earlier too for this evaluation. So these are not, these, uh, these uh, results are evaluated on, on the polyp crops that were not used for training the model. So, however, our uh, main task is actually uh, characterizing the whole slide. We want to actually uh, find the polyps on the whole slide rather than classifying these small poly uh, crops that are actually extracted by the, by the pathologist. So to do that, we use the very uh, simple and straightforward uh, inference uh, mechanism of the sliding window. So we had this uh, window that we actually slide over the whole slide, and we applied and classify, classify on every window, and uh, classify that window for the, for, for the polyp. And if you see the minimum confidence, uh, uh, a minimum number of polyps, a, number, a minimum number of windows that actually high confidence for a type of polyps, we concluded that uh, there is a, you know, that uh, the, the whole slide contains that, uh, that polyp. So this is the, the we call it the whole slide uh, classifica uh, classification, uh, uh, and this is using this uh, sliding window mechanism. So uh, after that, we actually uh, uh, evaluate this uh, whole slide classification using our 
uh, test set. In our test set, we had uh, 239 whole slides, and here you can see the uh, uh, our uh, uh, characterization uh, result for uh, for all of those five type of uh, polyps plus normal, and uh, you can see our accuracy ranges from 89, uh, 90% to uh, 95%. Our total accuracy in the whole uh, in the whole data set was about 93%. Also, we have precision or positive predictive value, recall or sensitivity, and F1 score. Uh, but uh, there is a there is a problem here. As as you guys, mostly clinicians in our do, in our um, uh, domain, know that um, most of the classifiers or AI technology they are focused to actually you know to producing these accurate models, and they are um, not doing that much work in uh, explaining or interpreting this result. So to make this uh, model and this system. Uh, useful in clinical setting, we didn't only want to have a you know uh, uh, high performing uh, model. We also wanted to make it interpretable uh, and make it useful in the clinical setting. So here we actually developed the visual network visualization uh, technology that actually can highlight the influential features and regions on the whole slide. So we can use that to actually. Um, and uh, to uh, have to uh, show some insight in in our classifier to clinical to clinicians and pathologists, so they can understand why we made this decision, and they can trust our technology. And also, we can uh, provide some uh, training uh, opportunity for new pathologists. So um, here, we actually for our visualization, we use the uh, visualization method uh, that is called. Uh, that's gradient-based. We basically project the influence of uh, our uh, predicted classes back on uh, pixels using these gradients or uh, this path that is called back uh, propagation. So I'm not going to discuss it but, uh, in detail, but basically we have this whole slide, and as I talked about it, we have these uh, uh, patches that are output of our sliding windows, and it goes through our classifier, and we have this confidence score. Uh, once we have the confidence, basically for for each class, we backpropagate it through the same classifier, and we have the basically influence score for every pixel. And we we basically uh, aggregate all the influences in the pixel space together from different patches and project it on the on the uh, on the whole slide. So we have this overlay of this color map on the whole slide, so the pathologist can uh, look at the whole slide overlay this uh, color map and figure out, okay, for, v for this class, what are, the, what are the regions and features that actually contribute to this decision? So uh, actually this method, rather than being accurate, has other uh, benefits. It does not require the extra annotation or extra training because it relies on the model that we actually trained in the previous, uh, in the previous step. And because we don't do any extra training through, uh, in this process, it's pretty fast. Uh, so this is some of the outputs that actually we generated using this back propagation uh, visualization. So, and we actually, I'm going to tell you how we actually uh, uh, evaluated it, but uh, qualitatively, talking to pathologists, Arif and other GI pathologists, we actually figure out that this is very promising. So uh, for evaluation, for concrete evaluation, we actually use the crops again, and we 
calculated the regions that we actually had high influence and calculate the uh, intersection over union of these regions that we predicted for the type of polyps and the regions that actually were outputted using, uh, from the uh, pathologies in form of crops. And uh, we, I should say, we used very different kind of methodology for this gradient-based projection. So we have backpropagation, guided backpropagation, grad cam, uh, class act activation uh, mapping or grad cam and guided gra grad cam. This is grad is the stuff for gradient. So these are very different methods. They're, they're all uh, gradient projection based. I'm not going, they're slightly different in terms of their mapping. But we saw that this uh, very recent uh, uh, method guided grad cam had the, had the best um, had the best result. And uh, in basic object detection in computer vision, uh, using this IO, uh, IOW, uh, IOU, actually, this every, anything among, uh, above uh, uh, 0.5 is, is considered to be very, uh, very high quality. So we actually f uh, found it promising. We published this result, and we are actually actively working and uh, making it even better. So um, also, I want to spend one slide uh, about information extraction uh, for for this patient. So Leah, among others, uh, who is a, uh, a PhD student in my lab, is working on extracting, uh, extracting risk factors and, uh, by, and clinical information from pathology reports and, uh, and uh, colonoscopy reports of these patients. So we actually build a pipeline that extracts this information, uh, and we tested it on the on actually uh, on a corpus of 125 records, and we actually saw a pretty, and we, uh, we actually specifically evaluated for the extracting number, size, and location of polyps, and we actually find out this is uh, pretty good and uh, very accurate. And this result is right now is under review in JAMIA. So um, now I'm gonna talk about this uh, NLP, and uh, National Language Processing and Information Extraction from medical record, but basically we want to combine these two different branches together. So our next step is going to be incorporate the features that we extract and the information that we extract through deep learning models uh, and the information that we extract from medical records to build a comprehensive risk assessment for the patients that come out of colonoscopy. So uh, this is the collaboration with, uh, with uh, Dr. Lynn Butterly and, uh, and New Hampshire Colonoscopy Registry, and you're going to test it on this uh, NACR patient to figure out uh, what, once we predict uh, in the retrospective manner, we're going to evaluate it and see once we predict the patient is high risk and low risk, what's gonna happen in the next five years or 10 years? Was the, our prediction basically uh, for high risk, does that mean that this patient actually uh, come back with the high risk adenoma or was that patient was normal in the next screening? So we are actually going to evaluate this risk assessment using NACR. And our model is going to basically based on a, on a new architecture that we are developing right now called wide and deep model. Basically, we are still rely on this uh, deep part to actually to analyze the whole slide images and extract features, and we are going to uh, basically analyze the, uh, analyze the factors, risk factors, and the other clinical information that we extract from medical records using this wide 
portion that is a generalized linear model and combine it together in the final stage. So um, this was all I wanted to talk about, uh, CRC and colorectal cancer. And uh, I want to talk about uh, the application of this technology in uh, other uh, conditions and cancer-related projects. So before that, I want to mention that um, I actually, uh, my lab is working on other uh, projects that are not cancer-related. For example, we actually analyze uh, histology images uh, for non-cancer like uh, uh, conditions like uh, celiac disease, and we're actually analyzing uh, radiology images like chest CTs to actually uh, identify incidental uh, vertebral fractures, and also even the actually analyzing histogram images for identifying uh, behavioral risk factors like smoking and uh, and uh, alcohol abuse or drug abuse risk factors. But today I want to talk about uh, three other projects that are kind of new. So we, we started this in uh, late last year, only a few years, and these are new developments in my in my lab, and I want to share uh, with you our current, basically, progress. And those are focused on the esophagus uh, adenoma, uh, adenocarcinoma, uh, NSCLC, or non-small cell lung cancer, and bladder cancer. And uh, in, this, uh, in these projects, uh, we are actually focused on identifying histologic pattern, grade, and prognosis uh, uh, for each, uh, for each uh, cancer. So uh, first, let's talk about improving esophagus uh, adenocarcinoma uh, diagnosis. So uh, very much uh, like uh, colon cancer, esophagus cancer starts from this uh, precondition pre or precancerous condition uh, uh, called Barrett's esophagus. And uh, the main reason for Barrett's esophagus is basically uh, is acid reflux or GERD. So it's basically irritate the junction of uh, esophagus and stomach. And uh, there are multiple risk factors for, for buried esophagus, like age, diet, obesity, smoking, race, and gender. So this is more common among white male uh, population. So uh, this slide shows the progression from uh, buried esophagus to uh, adenocarcinoma, about 10 to 20 uh, percent of U.S. population uh, suffer from acid reflux. Uh, reflux. Uh, however, only 1 to 2 percent of this population actually, uh, they, uh, they are basically conditioned progress to bear the esophagus. And, uh, and if this actually condition uh, uh, get worse, we will see bear the esophagus with low-grade dysplasia, high-grade dysplasia, and eventually uh, adenocarcinoma. I want to say that although this uh, progression only happens 0.1% uh, a year in this population, um, the mortality rate of uh, esophagus cancer is, uh, is uh, more than 85%. So it's a very critical uh, problem to address. So um, in this project, we actually, uh, we, our aim is developing an accurate and interpretable uh, image analysis system to characterize and uh, diagnose esophagus uh, adenocarcinoma on whole slide images. Pretty much uh, uh, similar to CRC and the uh, collector polyps, 
but uh, it's, it has a different, uh, different technology and underlaying that I'm going to discuss. And again, this is a collaboration with Arif and his group from pathology department. So to build our new technology, we actually collected 273 whole slides. And these are, again, very high resolution slides. So this is the average image size. We have 20,000 uh, 20, pixels with 17,000 pixels. And we actually, this, this maximum image size is pretty large. So, we, so every image is something about one or two gigabytes. So, um, and uh, similar to colorectal uh, cancer and colorectal polyps, we actually asked our uh, domain expert pathologist to go ahead and identify polyps and put a box around it. So this is the distribution of different classes that we were interested to identify in these polyps. We have, uh, you know, esophagus adrenal carcinoma. We have barrier esophagus with high-grade uh, dysplasia, with low-grade and just with no dysplasia and also normal. So we have uh, five classes here. And uh, all together, we collected uh, about 850 uh, crops. So these are the actually some, uh, some uh, points that our new technology wanted, uh, we wanted our new technology to address. So we actually saw that it's very often that we have one or uh, more type actually exist on the, on the whole slide. So we, you know, sometimes, so there is a normal tissue. Sometimes we see uh, some, some uh, low grade, also high grade on the slide, or buried with no dysplasia and with low dysplasia. So we have this mixture of multiple classes together. And in the previous model, when we have this whole slide, we actually, uh, whole slide inferencing, we use this uh, window-based uh, classification. And, but our aggregation didn't actually look at the correlation in each window. So we want to build a technology can look at the whole slide at, when, at, at, uh, at once and actually make the decision uh, by considering the whole, uh, the whole region, the whole slide, the, uh, all uh, tissue on the slide. And uh, in this new fashion, it can actually consider the correlation between different, uh, between different uh, uh, parts of the slide. So to build this new architecture, our solution was uh, using this model that is called attention model. I'm not going to... Uh, talk about why there is actually, this is a very um, uh, kind of uh, fast developing uh, uh, technology or domain in computer vision. And the reason that they call it attention is, uh, you know, when you look at the, so in computer vision, in, uh, when, when they try to analyze or develop this image understanding uh, uh, picture, uh, image understanding technology, we have this picture and we want our model actually attention to different parts of this, uh, this uh, image. So that's why they call the attention model. So it's a, so it's a widespread name for this, for this technology. So here um, we're basically going to uh, have uh, this, um, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I apologize, it's a little bit uh, the, the technical and didn't actually describe the annotation, but try to just in a very high, uh, high level, I talk about like, uh, what every part is doing. So we basically gonna have one unit. This is a LSTM unit for every for every class that we are going to uh, uh, to actually consider in uh, for, in the image, and it produces this confidence score and also this 
uh, attention matrix. So this is a matrix that actually uh, overlays on, the, on this image and, uh, ev and uh, the weight in every cell says that how much of that cell contribute to our, our confidence score. So basically, instead of we have all of these like whole, uh, sliding window, we have this grid, and we all, all at once, we make a decision, and we have this uh, attention matrix that actually identify the crucial or important parts for that decision. I hope that, uh, that kind of gives you the idea. But basically, this CNN is a convolutional neural network for extracting features. So this is the feature matrix. And this is like, uh, here we have five classes. We are going to have five a long short-term memory, basically, or LSTM, five units that is going to generate this confidence score for every class that you're interested in, and one attention uh, matrix for every, for every class. So, and here um, we, have, uh, we have actually used uh, this window, but basically we are going to apply on the whole slide. So we are going to have one attention model on the whole slide and tell us where on this slide uh, we can see that uh, that class that actually we are, um, or that type that we are interested in, or that uh, type that has a high uh, confidence score. So we actually put the math down. We actually, it, it required to do some kind of calculation to show the proof of concept. We actually developed the technology, and right now we are training the model. I should say that uh, we, uh, training these models actually requires GPU. We are using the GPU in my, in, you know, in, in my lab, and uh, we have servers with multiple GPUs, and usually it takes weeks to actually these models to converge or be trained. And um, to come is going to be the, actually after we train, we train the model, um, we are excited to actually see what the, what the result look like. So this is our status right now. So the second project that is and it's again ongoing. I'm just going to share with you the steps rather than the final results. Uh, it's going to, it's, it's about precision lung cancer management. And uh, this is a basically a very interesting project. We have been working on it for maybe one year and one year now and have different components. But I'm going to talk about the new, um, new steps rather than talk about like uh, previous steps that we have done in our publication. So, um, as you guys know, NSCLC um, and lung cancer is one of the few uh, uh, cancer types that actually we have uh, FDA-approved uh, targeted therapy, and uh, the drug actually can um, uh, can be customized and personalized based on the genetic profile. So here we want to build and val validate these deep learning models that actually can identify histo histologic patterns, great prognosis, and time to resistance in this targeted therapy based on all different information, based on genetic profile, based on pathology reports, based on histology images, and EMR data. And this is a collaboration with Greg, Greg Sangalis, and Dr. Uh, Laura Tafe, from, and their group from pathology department. So um, since 2013, NG, NGS, uh, uh, next generation uh, sequencing technology and screening has been installed uh, here at DHMC. And um, in this uh, screening, um, uh, actually we have information and mutation, somatic mutation information uh, at 50 hotspots, uh, gene hotspots regions. Uh, for the patients. So uh, through this collaboration with Greg and, uh, and his group, we actually 
uh, collected the genetic profile of 870 patients till now, and this data is actually uh, continuously growing. So this 850 was till uh, last December, I think. So as I mentioned, we already uh, uh, developed a pipeline uh, to actually to, uh, I think I didn't mention, but uh, we already uh, developed a pipeline actually to uh, analyze the pathology reports for these uh, patients. So we actually, in our uh, uh, NLP uh, pipeline, we input the pathology reports and we extract these uh, clinical pathology, pathological findings. And in our study, we actually find a very interesting correlation between these uh, clinical and pathological findings and genetic profiles. And we actually published this result recently, uh, late last year, and we showed that like BRAF, for example, mutation is uh, strongly correlated with micropapillary patterns, and uh, like emphysema is more common in, uh, in uh, carrier patients. And actually, we could go to the PubMed and uh, publications in this domain and actually interestingly find actually confirmation for these findings. So, uh, however, as I mentioned, I want to talk about this uh, new uh, further steps that we are taking right now to reach those goals of uh, more accurate prognosis and, uh, and grading and finding patterns and uh, histology images. And uh, to do that, in addition, uh, extracting pathology reports for these patients, we need to gather histology images uh, as well. So, uh, to do that, the collaboration with uh, Laura, Dr. Tafe and um, uh, and Yavgeny and other pathologists in the in the in the pathology department, we are actively right now uh, scanning these, digitizing these uh, the the histology images for for these patients. And so far, we gather 150 whole slides for about 60 patients. Also, uh, we are actually planning to extract uh, more whole slide images from TCGA. So it turned out there are uh, about one, more than 1,000 patients' uh, data, both uh, histology images and other clinical information available from TCGA. So we are going to combine our local data with this uh, publicly available data. And uh, these are our next steps. So um, the, the, the next step would be actually analyzing these uh, analyzing these histology images and trying to identify these uh, five different, different uh, patterns. So uh, there's leptic, SNR, papillary, micropapillary, and uh, solid, and these are very important patterns for grading. And it turned out, if um, you know, uh, long pathologists in the, in the room, these are actually non-trivial, actually, diagnosis and uh, recognition of the whole slide. So it turned out uh, it's very subtle. Basically, this diagnosis is very subtle, and most of the time, uh, there, is, uh, there is actually a mixture of these patterns. So we are excited to use our, the, this newly developed attention model to actually to, to tackle this, uh, this problem. And the next uh, step after that, you're going to combine this histology pattern and features that we extracted from these histology images with uh, our pipeline that analyzes the pathology reports and EMRs for these patients. So our uh, basically the goal, high-level goal, is basically trying to see what we can do uh, in terms of uh, grading of these tumors. We are going to actually build this model that can identify the grade and compare it to the pathologist for this.
task. And also, we are going to uh, build a model for prognosis. So we are going to the so we are going to uh, identify survival rate for the patient. And finally, because these uh, NLCSD patients, they go the, through different kind of uh, pathology. Uh, uh, personalized medicine and uh, target therapy, we are going to include the treatment informa uh, information in our model and try to predict time to resistance uh, for these patients. So as we all know, one of the major challenges in targeted uh, therapy is this uh, development of this resistance to drugs that usually occur in one year and so from the start of target therapy. So we want to identify the patients that are very likely to actually um, show resistance to their drug uh, in a short period of time, and be actually uh, talking to uh, to um, to uh, Constantin and other oncologists that are involved in our uh, research, we actually are very excited about the uh, about the use of this new technology for actually using uh, in targeted therapy. And uh, finally. Uh, before I run out of time, I want to talk about this uh, last project that we uh, recently started um, on uh, improving the diagnosis of bladder cancer. So very briefly, bladder cancer um, is actually, um, uh, it's not as prevalent as, uh, you know, lung cancer or um, colorectal cancer. However, about uh, more than 81,000 new cases of bladder cancer are diagnosed in the U.S., and uh, there is some kind of very interesting problem here, actually. You know, uh, some early stage bladder cancer, they remain uh, non-invasive, but some of these, a minority of these bladder cancer cases, they actually grow to be invasive. And the factors that contribute to this, uh, to this invasive nature is uh, commonly unknown. So it's not understood why, uh, for in some cases, the non-invasive uh, bladder cancer become invasive and in some cases, it remains, uh, remains uh, non-invasive. So here, uh, we want to build a computational method that uh, leverage uh, the observation of findings in pathology reports, in histology images, in, uh, the, and using genetic uh, biomarkers to actually to predict uh, prognosis for uh, people that having non-invasive bladder cancer. And this is a collaboration with, uh, with Margaret, with Dr. Margaret Karkas from Epidemiology Department. And through our collaboration, we had access to New Hampshire Bladder Cancer Registry. So uh, this, uh, in this, uh, in this uh, registry, we had uh, data from patients uh, from uh, 1994 to 2004, and we had a lot of information. Uh, to be honest, this actually data set is one of the cleanest data set that I ever worked with, and I work on many projects. So this is really, really clean data set that I enjoyed, uh, and my lab enjoyed working with. And we had uh, demographics information, genetic biomarkers, family history, smoking status, a stage grade, treatment information, a lot and a lot of information that were cleaned up and ready to use. So we actually look at the, and one interesting piece of information they have, we had, we had the survival rate of these patients in uh, a little bit more than 10 years. So here we actually plotted the patients. So uh, the patients basically, uh, the, let me see, this is their time and this is their percentage of death, uh, percentage of death in our, in our actually, in our cohort. 
And uh, red, uh, and basically this blue is basically is the percentage of people, about 15% of people in our cohort in these 10 years, they actually they end up dead uh, because of contribute, like uh, uh, reasons that contributed to bladder cancer. And overall, we had actually 40% 40, 40 of people actually died in this study, at the end of this study, and about 35% of uh, this uh, uh, these patients, 25% uh, of these patients passed away because of reasons that were not contributed to bladder cancer. So, um, so in this project, we first we wanted to see if we can predict 10, uh, 10 year actually survival uh, among these patients. So we actually wanted to see if we have all of these patients for the uh, for the actually uh, for for uh, if we have all the information for the patient like uh, their treatments, their basic grade, everything. If you can predict that 10 years from now, they're going to be still alive or they're going to die because of uh, reason related to bladder cancer. And to do that, we actually used um, uh, some linear model. And uh, we, this, is the, this is the initial study, very initial study we did actually just in the last couple of weeks to actually see if we can predict this uh, uh, the, uh, this basically death in uh, 10 years for this patient based on their data in the registry. And this is the work that has been, uh, is done with the student in my lab, the Diana Song, that uh, has done this analysis. So we basically find out with 80, 81% uh, area under the curve, we can predict that if the patient is going to be still alive or, or uh, pass away in, in 10 years. So. The next, so none of these actually information that we incorporated in the model uses any histology images. However, through registry, we have access to different histology um, images and uh, tissue microarray slides. So here we have two examples of HNE staining and uh, P53 staining. And our next step is basically uh, including these um, histology images in our prediction model. So. We, uh, so in our uh, immediate next step, we are going to actually do uh, the survival analysis and actually look at the hazard ratio for the, for the patients that we predicted uh, their 10, rate, uh, 10 years of survival to see actually if that's meaningful. We are going to uh, compute the p-value uh, p and, uh, and uh, Kaplan-Meier uh, survival curve to, for, for further analysis. And also, we are going to adjust for stage grade and treatment. So we are going to uh, compare, actually, our prediction uh, to stage grade and treatment to see how we actually stack against those. And our final um, uh, goal is basically including the histology images and leave out this interpretation that coming from pathologists to see if we can only rely on the raw histology images rather than interpretation or grading of uh, pathologists, we can still, with high, uh, with high performance, we can predict this 10-year survival or not. So that's the, that's the, uh, that's the final goal aim in this, uh, in this project. So this was my uh, last slide. I have 10 minutes that we can, um, we can spend on the Q&A. But before that, I want to thank my team. Uh, who uh, really work on this uh, hard in these uh, problems and uh, these uh, projects uh, were not possible without them. And also um, our collaborators for the great help on these projects and our funding source. Thank you very much for your attention.
Yes. So, uh, for the histopathological characterization, we are actually using this. Uh, so, uh, the in place guideline is using the histological type, uh, location, uh, size, and actually number of polyps to come up with the with the, basically the follow-up, the, the time to the follow-up uh, screening. And uh, in the first, our very first aim, we actually only focus on characterization. So there is, a, as I saw in the first table, there's a loss of variability only on the characterization. So there are, for example, in the hyperplastic and the SSB, there are loss of actually variability. And uh, hyperplastic is benign and it's actually low risk and the patients, if actually, if it uh, recognized correctly, the patient will come back in 10 years. However, if it is a SSP, it's actually very high risk. This is the, this is the very uh, fast growing polyp and actually the patients, according to the guideline, needs to come back in 10 years. So this is uh, our output is going to be used as an input to the guideline to actually to, uh, to help the pathologist or the clinician to identify the best uh, rate. Uh, however, we are going to actually, uh, in our last slide as future work, I mentioned that with uh, Lena and NACR, we are going to actually build a model that is kind of um, uh, trying to see if it can do better than guideline. So guideline says come back in three years or five years. So we have this longitudinal uh, data. We want to see if we can actually identify time to event uh, better or more accurately that saves some uh, basically the, that, uh, than the current basically recommendation. But that's based on the time where they come back. Yes. Yeah, so if the patient comes back in five years and see polyboliity, so we are going to basically have a more aggressive recommendation for that patient. Yes? Just kind of broadly across sort of any of the projects, do you have any idea how sort of tumor heterogeneity may contribute to sort of the sensitivity of your models and maybe sort of multiple, if you were able to get a data set of multiple histology slides from the same patient, maybe you could potentially increase the sensitivity of models. I don't know if you can speak to that at all. Yeah, well, actually, this is the very, very actually important and I think interesting issue. So uh, we are actually looking to, looked into uh, uh, incorporating the the genetic biomarkers and you know genetic mutations in our model. Uh, and that part is mostly um, uh, is on the lung cancer. Unfortunately, on colorectal on the colorectal polyps, uh, our patients because they are precancerous, they are actually not going through uh, genetic screening, so we don't have actually genetic data to see what's the effect uh, effect of those you know ge genetic biomarkers and mutations on you know on uh, on our results. But in lung cancer, we actually uh, we are excited to actually combine this data um, genetic data to actually improve our. Uh, 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 prognosis and risk prediction. So this is definitely 
something that we focus on, and it's dependent on if we have the data or not. And it turned out uh, we have actually good NGS data we have from 50 high, uh, hotspot um, regions in the NSCLC, and we have a smaller, basically, uh, genetic uh, pool of genetic biomarkers for uh, uh, bladder cancer that we're going to look into. Yes? So, so from these cases where you get multiple data types and as you train your models, um, do you get, um, I assume you get some weighting information as to what of the input data is most valuable of the different data types. I mean, do you have any results in terms of like in lung cancer in this case, right? What's, is, is histology most informative? Is the genetic data, do you think, the most informative? What's, what's the weighting as you start putting through the Yeah. So I, I talked about actually building these, um, like NLP pipeline that I didn't really spend that much time today in parallel to the to our basically histology and image understanding pipeline. So I want to clarify, we have not actually merged them together. They have been, have been going to uh, in parallel, but uh, I actually, those are, those are the things that we want to look into. So we actually talked about how in our histology image analysis, we are actually going to project back the, uh, the confidence score to figure out the, uh, features that are very important for our uh, classification, for our uh, collectoral polyp characterization. We are definitely, those are actually one of the things that we actually propose in our, um, in our uh, grant applications that we are going to do the same thing for the information that coming in from our, uh, from EMR and pathology reports and, you know, medical records. But yeah, definitely this is, uh, this is going to be actually very interesting, and we're going to um, look into it. Yes? Do you think you'll be able to train the model to use images from a, a machine that's less expensive than the Imperio? Oh. <sighs> we actually, <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. I want to say those machines are really awesome. They are very high resolution. Uh, I don't have that much experience with the, actually, you know, the, the, that hardware and that technology. I want to say this is a double-edged sword. We have lots of technical difficulties to actually process the image that this big. So uh, lots of, you know, lots of, you know, uh, off-the-shelves or current technology exists for just analyzing the images that are, you know, we take from by using camera, digital cameras, and that's very well developed. So, um, so we actually, uh, it would be interesting to see if actually if the resolution of the images go uh, lower, how much actually performance we are gonna lose. But that's, that's definitely, you know, uh, based on the availability of the data. So if you know a data uh, or a machine, you are more than happy to look into it. I also should say that we are actually looking at the uh, much lower resolution data that coming from CTs and X-rays. I don't know if they are cheaper than you know uh, this hardware, but they are definitely different kind of uh, resolution. And we have uh, we have seen success actually in identifying fractures or pulmonary uh, nodule detection in uh, chest CTs or uh, or X-rays. So. That sounds good because if you wanted to use telepathology from other places in the world, they oh. support that one. Maybe they can put something more cheaper. Yeah, definitely. So one of the usages of this actually that we discussed with our uh, investigators providing this as a 
as a service on the web that you know countries like India, people that don't have to, they can upload. So uh, yeah, this is a good point that if we can actually still identify using lower resolution. Constant, please. So uh, there is uh, the images uh, look very um, kind of comparable. They're between 20x to 40x actually scanned. So they are actually they are very. Uh, if you want only to look at this pathological uh, characterization, we can actually uh, use it in, com uh, in combination to, to, our, uh, to our actually local data. However, for prognosis and, uh, uh, and uh, other clinical information, it's not, it's not as comprehensive as the EDH data that we have. So our, uh, basically our goal is uh, using uh, uh, TCGA data as external validation. So we have actually survival data and uh, for these um, uh, patients, uh, for these individuals through TCGA, and we are going to see if we can actually use that as an external validation and have a high accuracy there. Yes. Okay, so I think that was the end of it. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.